Uh, good morning. I'm glad you're here. Uh, welcome to church. Um, if you're new, you have caught us uh, in the middle of a conversation on the Lord's Prayer. And so far, it's taken us uh, two weeks to get through the first two words. So it's a fast ride. And what we've said so far, first, uh, thank you, Gary, uh, for last week filling in. Uh, that was a fantastic word, and I missed being here with you guys. Uh, what we said so far is when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, um, he said this really uh, crazy thing which made his approach to prayer um, so different than all of the other approaches to prayer that his disciples were familiar with and even today. He said, guys, when you pray, you need to talk to God. Like actually talk to God instead of talking to other people via prayer, right? Like in the prayer circle in youth group, when Stacy, who just stole your boyfriend, prays that we learn to forgive people and that we get over boys, right? Lord, please help everyone, love everyone. And we've probably seen some form of that in Christian circles where it feels like the prayers of those around us are targeting select people to get something across that they want them to know, right? And Jesus said, don't pray like that. <laughs> don't use prayer to manipulate and control others. And primarily what Jesus says, don't use prayer to put on a show to impress others. He said, when you pray, crazy idea, actually talk to God. Like get alone, close the door, get out of sight so all other incentives for prayer are absent, i.e. people think you're spiritual, and God who sees in secret will reward what's done in secret. What's more, for Jesus, prayer seemed to be a daily expectation for his disciples. He said, when you pray. Jesus intends for prayer to be a daily thing if you're going to be his disciple. And Paul picked up on this later when he wrote, pray without ceasing. But because Jesus' words here are so practical and concrete, and because most of us keep Jesus in the part of our mind that's unpractical and not concrete and kind of spiritual, when Jesus says things like this, we don't tend to realize he actually means what he says, right? Because we're in church and you checked out intellectually on the second song, right? And so we don't hear Jesus' words when he says stuff like this. It's just so practical, right? It's like how most husbands, happy Father's Day, by the way, it's like how most husbands, let me just rail on you for a while, listen to their wives, right? It's how we listen to Jesus. All we hear is the adults in Charlie Brown. Like, I can tell, <laughs> happy Father's Day, I can tell when my wife is like ramping up, you guys know what I'm talking about? Like, like you realize this is going to go a long time. Like you can, I can tell, like the body language, like this, the t everything, right? And I, and dude, up to, to stay engaged, I gotta, you know, I'm with you. You know, I gotta lean in, right? And I know all the wives are like, what a horrible husband. And all the guys are like, yep. Like <laughs> trying to quietly affirm what I'm saying with their eyeballs, right? <laughs> like the most terrifying question a husband can be asked, right? Is out of the vacuous nothing, that is our normal mental state. What did I just say? Right? Like, sends you right into fight or flight. Like, you don't know what to do, you know? But that's how most of us tend to listen to Jesus when he gets real practical. 
It, it, the, the clarity, the articulation of his words just kind of blend into the ambient background noise, you know? You lose all our... When Jesus begins to talk to us about really practical, simple things like this, right? He's trying to lead us into life. And what we often hear is... Right? If you don't believe me, okay? If you're like, oh, I listen to Jesus. Okay. Just ask yourself, how much of your life your habits, your daily living has been formed and influenced by the teachings of Jesus. If you don't believe me that we listen to Jesus like we listen to a car alarm down the street, just hoping someone's gonna deal with that later, right? How much of the teachings of Jesus actually form your daily living? So my point's proven, right? Like we listen to him like, and, what we've, and it can be, listen, you just ask yourself that question. It can be a sobering exercise, especially those who have followed Jesus for a long time, who assume that we're already doing the thing, right? And you actually read thoughtfully the Sermon on the Mount. It is, it's like unbearable. Have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount, y'all? Like it will crush you. You don't do any of that stuff. And half of it feels totally unpractical. Are you serious? Right? Who was it? Some American author, like, what was his name? Uh, what was the guy that wrote Huck, Huck Finn? What was that guy? Yes. He said he had nightmares of a big, massive, heavy Bible crushing down on his chest so where he couldn't breathe. If you read the Sermon on the Mount and you don't feel the weight of it, the moral weight of it, bearing its significance on who you are, you've not read it. It's very, very interesting. But what we've said up to this point is that it just makes sense that Jesus would not teach us to pray in a different way than he himself prayed, right? He got alone. He, and he said, when you pray, pray like this. And then he gave us the Lord's Prayer. And guys, again, I'm just gonna throw it out there. I think he meant what he said. I think he was serious, okay? And most of us probably haven't memorized. So let's, let's read it and let's get into what I think he's trying to say and maybe what he's not trying to say. So let's, let's read it together. We've been doing this, all right? We're gonna read it together. It should be up here, ready? Here we go. Our Father in heaven, come on, get loud. Hallowed be your name. There you are. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Most of you probably didn't have to read it. You have it memorized. If Jesus again, blow your mind, was brilliant. And he said this stuff in a way that it's like a little poem. Like most kids can memorize this, right? And what we mentioned, and we mentioned in passing, but it bears repeating. This teaching of Jesus, when you pray, pray like this, does not mean that to pray, you must rehearse word for word this little poem a couple times. That does not, that's not what he's getting at, y'all. 
Probably not. How do we know that? Well, dude spent hours in prayer. Are we just going to say he was just rehearsing that same thing over and over like a mantra, right? All night sometimes, Jesus praying. And then, of course, what we already said, there's a whole book of Psalms. You know what the Psalms is? It's the prayer book of the church. The entire thing is prayers. And none of those are word for word what Jesus just said. And yet all in the Bible as valid ways to pray. Some of them are crazy. You should read the Psalms, right? And not only that, we have all the prayers of the, of the of Old Testament, Prayers of Moses, prayers of Abraham, prayers of Daniel. None of them prayed this word for word. So Jesus is not saying, if you're gonna pray like me, you better get this right. And you better hope you have the right translation because you know, he didn't speak it in English, right? Aramic and then, you know, Greek, right? So you, you know, if it's like pray the right words, then we better just learn Aramic, right? Or we learn Greek or whatever like that. That's not what he meant. Of course we know that, right? Um, and this might startle you. This is further why Jesus did not mean when you pray, only rehearse these words, okay? Believe it or not, that kind of thinking, get the words right, in the right order, with the right phrasing, is closer closer to witchcraft than Christianity. You know what it's called when you say a very important sequence of words in the right way? You know what that's called? An incantation. That's right, a spell right? Say this phrase, stomp twice, throw gluten-free flour over your head and turn around, right? And boom, you got in, right? A spell, y'all, incantations claim, listen, to make unseen spiritual forces work in your favor. See, spells are harnessing unseen powers for your purposes. That is not prayer, right? A lot of people, which unfortunately can resemble many people's approach to prayer. If I say this right, if I do this twice, then it's kind of like throwing a penny in the pond, right? To get God to work for me. That is not prayer, y'all. It's absurd. And it's not the point of prayer. Not only that, that approach to prayer will completely empty out the meaning of all the words we just said, because then we're not focused on actually what we're saying. We're just focused on the words, getting the diction right, right? The syntax, right? right? Getting the pronunciation right. It's not prayer. So if we're praying together, you don't need to worry. I got to impress the pastor and say the thing. It's not what he's talking about, okay? That's closer to witchcraft than it is Christianity. And then what's even worse, y'all, and of course we maybe have seen it depending on how you grew up, is this idea that rehearsing word for word the Lord's Prayer can be some sort of recompense for sin. You know what I'm talking about? So you go to confession and dude's like, what'd you do? Oh, ouch. Okay, that's bad. All right, well, say five our fathers three Hail Marys. And I'll tell you what, bro, for this one, you're probably gonna have to volunteer in the kids' ministry, right? Which is the most anti-gospel understanding of prayer you could ever have. Y'all, we don't pray to get on God's good side by using the right words. We pray because we're already on God's good side by the work of Christ, right? Like, you're already in, man. You're already in. You don't have to butter up the divine, so he'll listen to you. You're already in. He already loves you. It's gonna blow your mind, y'all. It's gonna blow your mind. God loves you. It, It boggles me, right? I mean, we said it before. I'm just as confused as you are, but you're already in. You don't have to say the right words, do the right thing, so that he says, okay, you passed the test. Dude, you failed, bro. You failed. 
Jesus passed the test for you and you get the reward he deserves. You're already in the good graces of the Father. You don't have to merit your way there by saying the right kinds of prayer or impressing the right kinds of people. If we would understand that, I'm telling you, our lives would be transformed. You are already in. He already loves you. You're already forgiven. He's already called you his kid, right? Which is the first thing Jesus wants us to remember when we talk about prayer, right? He said, when you pray, pray what? Our Father, which is what we spent tons of time on uh, two weeks ago. In other words, Jesus seems to think that when you go to pray, the first and foremost thing that should be in your head is what? Who you are praying to, right? You are praying to a loving, sacrificial, giving Father. So when you pray, the first thing to remember is this, who God is. Who are you talking to? Like you are praying to someone and this might be who you are talking to. I'm gonna, I might, it is way more important than anything else that's gonna come after that, right? If you don't have in your head who you are talking to, then maybe you're just talking to the pixie fairy dust, right? You're just doing the thing. You're throwing a penny in the pond. You're not talking to anyone. When he says, when Jesus says, when you go to pray, the first thing I want in your mind is who you are praying to, our Father. You're in. He loves you. He's already accepted you. And just like you had nothing to do with the physical conception of yourself and coming into existence, so God has acted and made you his child before you even existed. Right? That's some cosmic stuff right there. He has sought He has loved, he has sacrificed, he has made a way, and he's offering to be father to you, a perfect father, if you would have it. So this is week three, okay, of this series, and we are still only dealing with the address because, stay with me, the power of prayer is not in how you pray. It is not in your faith in your prayer. It is not in your earnestness in praying. If you just squeeze out a tear, that doesn't confirm the power of prayer, okay? Because the power of prayer is not simply the psychological and emotional effects it may have on you. There's many, there's many, many studies about the psychological and emotional effects prayer has on people, all right? Secular studies, right? The power of prayer is in who you are praying to, period, okay? So I know we're barely in this and I just can't get over this, but this idea of pausing before I pray to reflect on who I am praying to, a father who loves me deeply has affected my prayer life in just the past weeks, y'all. Like change has been happening in my soul as I reflect on who I am praying to before I just launch in to fix this, help this, do this, help that. Thank you, thank you, thank you, amen, right? So often can our prayers devolve into this kind of stream of consciousness Fix this, fix this, fix this. Okay, thanks, I'm out, right? And I mean, for me, I feel like sometimes prayer is just a spiritual form of whining. Is that just me, right? Uh, And it's like, uh, my prayers are hitting the ceiling. I know it, they're just bouncing back down. I don't care, am I actually talking to anyone? I don't know, but Pastor Chris said we're supposed to pray every day, so just gonna go do this, right? And so Jesus, through this prayer, through this address he's giving, as simple as it is, has reminded my heart, I am actually talking to someone, right? Like Hebrews 11, right? Whoever draws near to God must actually believe that he exists, duh, right? And if you're a child of God, you're talking to your father who loves you deeply. And where is that father? Well, he's in heaven. That's what Jesus said, our father in heaven, right? Our father in heaven, that's the address that Jesus gave us. And these are the ideas that I think Jesus wants to guide our praying when we pray. 
who we are talking to, our Father in the heavens, in heaven. Now, we have to do some deconstructing to get at what Jesus is saying when he says heaven, right? Because most of us, when we think of heaven, tend to think of some other realm outside of time and space. So we think of like uh, the Marvel multiverse, you know, or something like that. Heaven is some other reality, some fifth dimension. And of course, there's some truth to that. Many thinkers have used dimensional reality to explain how God interacts with us, and I think it can be helpful. Um, But the only way you can get there is by dying, you know, right? You got to die. Heaven is most commonly thought of as what? The life hereafter. After you die, you maybe you'll get to go to heaven. And what is heaven like? Europe, we don't know, right? White white columns, you know, clouds, babies, naked babies on harps, apparently. That's what the arts, that's what they say, right? And we have very cartoon ideas of heaven. And I now argue that none of those, none of those is what Jesus is getting at when he tells us the address, our Father who art in heaven. Dallas Willard of the Divine Conspiracy says, unfortunately, the old standard formulation, our Father who art in heaven, has come to mean our Father who is far away and much later. In fact, a more accurate definition of the word heaven used here in the original language uh, is, uh, I'll tell you the word, ready? Here we go. Ha, that's the, okay? And then iranas, uranas. I don't, okay, right, uranas. Now, it literally means the heavens. It's plural. Ha is before it. The, the heaven, the heavens. So the, the accurate translation would actually be our Father who is in the heavens. Then it goes on, hallowed be thy name. And if you look at the definition of that word, the heavens, it, it just means the skies, the vaulted expanse. Here's the definition, the universe, the region where clouds and tempest gather, the starry array at night, the blue atmosphere by day. It's the same word that Jesus used when he was talking about reading the weather. In Matthew 16, he says, when it's evening and you say the weather will be fair for the sky is red. You know what word he uses there? Uranas, the heavens. What is he talking about? He's talking about the physical realm that we look up and see that's red with clouds in it, right? Uh, Okay, I'll give you some more because I can tell you're looking at me crazy. James 5.18, when he's quoting about Elijah praying, and the heavens, Uranas, gave rain. Does rain come out of the immaterial fifth dimension? No, it just comes out of the sky. We don't understand that. The Old Testament's the same way, y'all. When it talks about heavens, it literally means look up, the sky, where we see. Doesn't it say the heavens are declaring the glory of God, right? Moses stretched out his hand towards the heavens, right? The Psalms tells us the heavens are clear. It's out of reach. It's higher than us, but you can look up and see it, right? Isaiah 55, here we go. As rain and snow come down from heaven, it's the same word. When the Bible talks of heavens, it's talking about the physical atmosphere you see above you, and it's also using the same word to talk about where God lives, in the skies, literally, around you, above you, right? Deuteronomy is gonna, I know y'all looking at me like I'm crazy, just reading the Bible. Deuteronomy is gonna push the point. Here we go. Deuteronomy 4.39, you know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven, right? Above and on earth, beneath, there is no other. In Paul's sermon in Athens, he's preaching about a God who made the world and everything in it, right? That all should seek him and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet, he says, he is actually not far from each of us. So 
What is the Bible and Jesus trying to tell us? Well, obviously, that God is far away and distant in another realm and inaccessible to the likes of us. No, the exact opposite. The exact opposite. That God is as near to you as the air you breathe. Prayer is simply, simply acknowledging this Jesus-revealed reality about God, that he loves you deeply and that he is near to you exactly where you are. Psalms 46 says, calls God a very present help in trouble. Very present, very near, right? So when we pray like Jesus taught us to pray, we are simply submitting to who God has revealed himself to be, right? A father who loves us and who is near to us here and now. When we pray like Jesus taught us to pray, we are allowing all of our cynical, jaded attitudes that we've accumulated by heartbreak and brokenness, we're allowing all of our disillusionment, all of our disappointment, all of our suffering, our woes, right, our sins, our failures to bow down before a God who loves us and is near to us. I mean, if, if that doesn't in some way catalyze your desire to pray, I don't know what will. This God who we often think is so high, so other, so far, so holy that we have no chance at accessing it. What Jesus is saying is that he is not so far away, that he's near to you and that he loves you. And that, I would argue, is a fire underneath our prayer life, if nothing else is, right? In fact, in number six, I just want to press on this because I think it's so fundamental to whether or not you pray as a person, right? When, in number six, when Moses tells Aaron, this is how you are to bless the people. Moses tells Aaron, before he does, right, this is, what you, this is what you are to say to remind the people of who God is and what he is like and his position towards them. He says, tell them that God blesses them. That he, he this, is, this is number six, in case you're like, no, he doesn't say that. Tell them that he blesses them, that he, he keeps them that his countenance shines when he looks towards them. Tell them that God is continually turning his face towards them to give them peace, right? You ever read that one? May the Lord's face shine. We say it in King James and we completely missed the meaning of it, right? Lord, face shine his face upon you. You know that one? This is what Moses is saying. Remind the people over and over and over again, that God is looking towards them to bless them, to give them peace. Look, this is the God of the Bible, all right? And whatever other conceptions you have of him at some point must reckon with this, all right? Because here's the deal. This is what this whole thing has brought up in me uh, and revealed in me personally for my prayer life. I am very cynical. I don't know if you've picked up on that, right? Towards a lot in life, right? And I, <laughs> I think... Some of that is going to shock you, some of you. Some of that cynicism has bled over into a how I think about God, right? And I've said this a little bit before, right? Like, I'm annoyed by coffee cup Christianity. You know what I'm talking about? This is like, just like the great little cute, feely good, you know, squishy bunny verses, you know? 
like on bumper, bumper stick, only the verses on bumper stickers and coffee cups. You know, just look at those, right? I, yeah, yeah, right? Anyone? He's, he's with me, right? Anyone? I'm just annoyed by that, right? The, 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 all, just, let's just all focus on the verses that make us feel good and ignore the rest, right? So I, I just, you have a pastor that just kind of gravitates towards verses no one else wants to talk about. I'm sorry, all right? And I, I think the Lord's made me that way for a reason and a purpose. But if you allow your cynicism to cause you to ignore all of the biblical ideas that do affirm and bless and bestow love and honor on you, even when you know you don't deserve it, then you've made the same fatal mistake in the opposite direction, right? You have gravitated towards all the hard confrontational aspects of the Bible because you like, you know, make you, I feel like a rebel, you know, <laughs> I'm a Christian, but I'm a rebel Christian, got some tattoos, right? Right? We gravitate towards all those and ignore all the verses on blessing and love and acceptance and affirmation. You're just as guilty on the other side of the coin, man. So you're producing a God who's harsh and holy and, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? And so these are the options, right? Either you err, the first heir produces a gushy, unsubstantial Christian who can't endure the storms of life. The second heir produces an angry, judgmental Christian who stands on the edge of services like this. I wouldn't do that that way. He shouldn't have said that, right? You should do church this way, right? And if you lean more to the tor- towards more the cynical, intellectual faith, right? Love to study the harsh kind of jarring aspects of God, his holiness, his wrath towards sins. Like, I get it, man. Like, you do deserve a harsh, judgmental God, right? So do I, right? I, we do deserve a rigid, demanding, you know, you're, you know that's, I, we do deserve a God like that. It's just not the God of the Bible. It's, at least not according to Jesus. At least not according to Jesus, right? And if you think, the remedy for sleepy, apathetic Christians is a stern slap in the face with God's holiness that doesn't seem to be Jesus's remedy, right? Because when Jesus, you with me? We tracking? All right. When Jesus looked out over Jerusalem with all of its sin, with all of its bad theology, with all of its misled religious leaders, he rises up in judgment and calls down fire. no. No, that's not what he does. When Jesus pulls up to Jerusalem and looks over all of the horrible thinking about God that had developed from religion, all of the sins, what does he do? He mourns. He says, how I longed to gather you under my wings like a baby, what is it? Like a chicken gathers her hens, right? How I've longed to protect you and draw you to myself. All these religious, arrogant people who had horrible thinking about God. What is Jesus's remedy? I wanna draw you to myself. He looks out. I mean, some of us look out over the landscape of Christianity, you're just disgusted, right? Ah, these Christians, they're horrible. What's the remedy? Well, according to Jesus, to draw them to himself, to protect, to comfort. This is Jesus perfectly imaging God to us. His remedy for all of our sins, all of our failures, religious or not. Now, I can't sustain a cynical, negative attitude toward Christianity at the same time embracing a father who loves me. It just tends to melt. Like they, I just, I can't sustain it. It, When I begin reflecting on a father who has loved me deeply despite my sins, who's gathered me to himself, who longs to to bring me up into his arms and protect me, the hardness of my heart tends to not be able to withstand that kind of unconditional love. It just starts melting, right? As Jesus perfectly images God to us, right? He's filled with sorrow and compassion. How I've longed to gather you to myself. Because of the cross, y'all, 
We get the honor Jesus deserved and he gets the wrath we deserve. And for me, just pausing for a second on this idea of God as loving me, who's moving towards me despite my rebellion is like, it's like wrecking me, you know? Like, I don't, I don't care how many times I read the prodigal son, every time I read it, I'm like, I'm both sons. I'm both at the same time running away from him and at the same time claiming I deserve more than the next guy. Like how twisted is our little sinful heart, right? I'm finding my, my cynical negative attitude just can't be sustained in the loving embrace of unconditional, unearned father's love that's moving towards me no matter where I find myself. So I'm just gonna, I'm going with it. I'm just going with it. I'm just, I'm gonna start believing that God actually loves me. And when I start to pray, the thing I do first is sit with this God who I am talking to, loves me completely, fully, and is near to me here and now. And I'm telling you, man, I'm telling you guys, something's happening, right? Like, like I'm starting to listen to Christian pop. (laughs) Like, I have my limits, all right? But I'm sending like the cheesiest Christian pop songs to my dudes, and they don't know what to do with it. Like I'm sitting in these, like, I'm blessed. I'm a child of God. And they're just like, who is this? Like, what, what, what are you talking about? Right? And when I pray now, right, I'm not just rambling to the ceiling. I'm talking to someone who loves me deeply. Not because of anything I've done. Not because I'm awesome, right? And got the mic on Sunday. Nothing to do with why he listens to my prayers, y'all. Nothing to do with why he's close to me or near to me. All of it rests on the work of Jesus, right? And I don't even, it's just given me some fresh reasons to worship, Right? If you have a harsh, demanding view of God, you have no reason to worship. It might explain some things about your, how your worship or lack thereof worship, right? But I have got new reasons to worship because I'm believing that he loves me and he's near to me based on the goodness of Jesus, right? So if all of that, you're like, I don't know, man, like the whole heaven translation thing's a little flimsy, right? Is God really close to me? Is he really, ex- like, I'm a sinner, remember? I'm a sinner, and he's holy. That's the whole, whole thing about the cross, y'all. Like the divine nickname, nickname Jesus was given, what was it? Emmanuel, God with you, right? And when he left, when Jesus left, he said, it's better that I'm going because if I don't go, the helper won't come, right? And it was when he died that the curtain of the temple that hid the presence of God from the people was ripped into as if to say God will never be, was never contained by a temple in the first place and has no intentions of living distant from you, far away from you. And of course, we know at Pentecost, it was out of the atmosphere, out of the heavens, right? That something like fire rested and hovered over each of them as if to say, now it is with each of my followers that I will dwell. It's, a, it's hearkening back to the Exodus story where, the, where God led them a pillar of fire and smoke, you know, by day and night, you know that one? It's hearkening back to that, the presence of God now, not distant, not on the mountain, now over every single one, one of his believers, despite their sin, despite their unholiness, despite all the reasons we hold up as to why God can't be near us. The Pentecost shows us that his desire is to be near, dwell in you so much so that it led Paul to say in Ephesians 5, don't be saturated with wine, but rather be saturated with the spirit of God. 
right? Despite your sins. Don't just acknowledge his nearness around you, but acknowledge his desire to dwell in the interior of your life. Like that's near. Y'all, to be baptized, the whole symbol is this, that you're being saturated with the presence, with the nearness of God, right? That he's no longer far away because of your sins, because of your guilt, that in Jesus, he is now as near to you as water clings to your body when you jump in a pool. That's who we're praying to our Father in the heavens, that he's done all of the necessary things to remove all of the barriers between you and him. And he is now, no matter the depth of your rebellion, no matter where you find yourself, if you're running full speed away from the Lord in sin, just losing yourself in sin, guess where he is? Right beside you, right? Walking through the desert, right? I don't know where God is, never felt him. I never pray. I can't feel right beside you. And if you will begin to believe the scripture, if you will begin to believe what I'm trying to tell you that a child can understand, he loves you and he's with you, it's gonna revolutionize your prayer, prayer life. It's gonna change everything, everything, much more than your prayers, all right? It's gonna change how you live. It's gonna change how you look at people, how you talk to people. It's gonna change everything, right? There's two things in Jesus. They've only got two, like four words in the prayer, right? <laughs> Our Father who is in the heavens, you love me, you are near to me, right? Even now, y'all, God could be addressed right now by you in this room. When we turn from our sin and repent and believe in his goodness towards us, in his goodness towards us we find that he has never left us in the first place. That he's always been beside us, right? That he had been actually waiting for us to start believing that he was actually strong enough to deal with the guilt of your sin, right? And to climb up into the arms of a loving father. And only when, y'all, I'm gonna argue, only when we realize these realities, only when these realities settle in on our souls will our prayer life begin to flicker with the heat of the Holy Spirit. This is why Richard Foster says, the true syntax, what's well, syntax, right? The correct words, the right pronunciation, the foundations, right? The structures, the true syntax of prayer is love, not words, right? The true syntax, the true foundations of prayer is falling in love with who God is, seeing his love for you and responding to that love with your love. Like love will make you do crazy things, y'all. Might even start listening to Christian pop, you know, who knows? But if we don't believe that he loves us and that he's near to us, well, it just makes sense you're not gonna pray, right? And conversely, when you actually begin to believe these, listen to the words, Jesus revealed realities. When you begin to believe these Jesus revealed realities about God, you may get addicted to prayer. You just might start praying all day long without ceasing, that's what, that's what scripture says. Only those who are confident in his love and nearness will ever stand a chance at doing uh, what Philippians 4, 6 instructs us to do. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And what? The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, we just have no motivation to pray in the way that we're being taught to pray unless we believe these fundamental realities about God, that he loves you deeply and that he's near to you. Let's stand and pray.